everyone, and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I'm Sean, and I will be the host for this show. In this episode, we will be discussing a number of infamous monsters who all have origins in America. Now, if you were to think of some of the most well-known monsters of legend, you might think of the werewolf or vampires, Nessie the Loch Ness Monster, or maybe the abominable snowman. All of these monsters are quite well known all around the world, and many legendary monsters like those have been around for a very long time. We have discussed a number of these monsters, like the Yeti in a previous episode, and the werewolf and the most famous vampire of all, Dracula, took place in our special little Tournament of Monsters episode on New Year's. Recently, though, we have been getting a lot of requests to look into a number of creatures and cryptids that are based in our country of the United States. So we went through and have picked a number of our favorites to present in this episode. For each of these particular monsters and creatures, we will dive into the mysteries of their origin stories, what caused their notoriety, and if there is any basis in reality for any of these supposedly mythical beasts. So to get us started, the first infamous monster we will be talking about is probably one of the oldest and well-known throughout America, and that is the Jersey Devil. Now this creature was suggested to us from Brandon. And the New Jersey Devil is one of the most famous and legendary creatures in the United States. Its history and origins may date back hundreds of years, which, along with Thunderbirds and the Wendigo of Native American culture, make it one of the oldest known cryptid creatures in America. It is also one of the country's most enduring urban legends. Stories of the Jersey Devil actually predate the formation of the United States itself. For some wondering just how famous this creature is to the area in the modern times, the New Jersey Devil's hockey team is named after this legendary monster. The Jersey Devil itself is often portrayed as a flying biped creature with hooked feet. However, just like many of the old creatures, such as the Wendigo, there are a good number of different variations depending on what time and person you speak to. The most common agreed upon image of the devil is that of a kangaroo looking body but with the head of a goat. This peculiar monster also possesses bat-like wings, horns on its head, small clawed hands, and even a forked tail. One of the most disturbing traits is its characteristic blood-curdling scream that many people who have claimed to encounter this creature have heard. The Jersey Devil is said to inhabit a region called the Pine Barrens. The Pine Barrens is an area of New Jersey that is known for its thick, dark forest. This natural region has a contrast of stifling heat in the summer, but beautiful snows in the winter, and is quite different than the industrial and urban growth usually associated with the state. It is in these deep woods that the Jersey Devil is claimed to live in solitude, and where a number of unlucky travelers have run across this terrifying creature. As with any legend that has been around for a long time, there are a number of different stories that detail how this creature came to be. However, the most popular origin story of the devil goes like this. This story takes place hundreds of years ago, back in 1735, decades before the United States would even form as a country. A woman who is now known only as Mother Leeds was the matriarch of a large family, having already birthed a dozen children. However, at one point she became pregnant with her 13th child, an unlucky number and an ill omen as most people are aware of. As time went on, Mother Leeds spoke about how this pregnancy was the worst of them all, and it just felt wrong to her. 
She claimed that she just inherently knew somehow that this baby would be a devil monster. Mother Leeds herself was rumored to be an evil witch, and there was talk that she had created this 13th child by mating with the devil himself. Mother Leeds would go into labor on a particularly stormy and scary night, as her friends and large family gathered around to greet the newest member of the Leeds clan. It was an extremely drawn out and painful labor, and Leeds was said to have invoked the devil to take away her pain. It was then that the child was finally born. The newborn baby seemed normal at first, and the gathering celebrated. However, just a few minutes after it was born, the child started to change and morph into an entirely different being. It grew hooves where its feet should be. Its human head changed into one looking like a goat. A tail grew quickly from its behind, and wings sprouted up from its back. The family stood stunned at this sudden transformation, and before anyone could react, this devilish creature emitted a fearsome growl and leapt up, killing the midwife who had delivered the baby. Amidst the screams and confusion, this small devil creature flapped its small wings and flew up through the chimney, leaving its mother and humanity behind. Those outside the house who heard the screams of the family and the growls of the newborn monster saw it fly up above, circling the village before heading in the direction of the pines. After years of the village being terrified from sightings and attacks from this devil, a clergyman took it upon himself to conduct an exorcism ritual which banished the demon beast for a hundred years. Now as fanciful and creepy as that story goes, there are of course a lot of skepticism and doubts about it. As with any legendary story, there are also a lot of variations and versions of it. Some tales will go with the previously mentioned story that the birthing process made a human baby which quickly changed to a monster, but there are plenty others which say that Mother Leeds gave birth directly to a devilish looking beast. Other versions say that the child devil creature came about as a result of the family curse, and not the coupling of a human witch with the devil. As interesting as the Devil's origin story is, it is important to dig a little deeper into this fanciful tale to look for a more realistic theory. Now one of the most obvious reasons why this well-known origin story probably isn't very accurate is the fact that in it, Mother Leeds in one way or another gives birth to a demon-like creature. So that is a problem, as according to modern medical knowledge, women typically give birth to human babies and not the spawn of Satan. So that's a big red flag right there. Now that isn't to say that this scenario should be entirely dismissed, but we will get into that possibility a little later on. One important fact to note is that though this origin tale dates back to before the United States itself, this story did not get published until 1909, over a century after it allegedly took place. The first major pamphlet about the Jersey Devil that was first made public in 1909 was the first written account of what the creature looked like, describing its bat-like wings, animalistic head, and grotesque clawed limbs. After this publication, nearly every other account of the creature would reuse these same characteristics. Today there are a lot of books and websites devoted to the Jersey Devil, but many of them just rehash the same basic ideas that were set during the original publications. Now the telling part about this fact is that you would think with such a bizarre and crazy story that it would have been written down much sooner if it had actually taken place as described in the monster's now infamous origins regarding the birthing of Mother Leeds' devil baby. 
However, there are absolutely no mentions of this event or the beast itself in any of the colonial New Jersey newspapers or pamphlets of the time. Thus, the tales of a stormy night that gave birth to the devil, which would later haunt and kill innocents around the village, only to be exorcised by a brave clergyman, have no basis in the literature of the time period that it supposedly took place in. Another damning aspect is that the Quakers, the religion of the people at the time, did not perform exorcisms at all. Exorcisms are attributed to the Catholic Church, which is the major religion of the more modern-day New Jersey, which might show that whoever first wrote of the alleged encounters of the devil's birth did not exactly do his homework on the actual religion practiced during the mid-1700s. But going back to the story of Mother Leeds, perhaps it shouldn't be written off entirely. People of the 1700s, especially those of the Quaker faith, believed in the practice of witchcraft. Actually, it has been said that, for the people at the time, the belief in witchcraft was just as accepted as the modern man's belief in science or medicine. There have been accounts of mothers giving birth to deformed children, which would often lead to the others in their society to believe that the baby was the work of the devil, or that the child had been cursed by some type of black magic. So it may be that Mother Leeds did not give birth to a goat-headed, wing-sprouting devil, but instead rather to just a human baby that unfortunately had severe deformities. If this was in fact Mother Leeds' 13th baby, that would probably put her on the older side, which would just naturally raise the risk of birth defects. So if you take that into account, perhaps a woman did give birth to a terribly deformed baby that scared and disgusted the highly religious and superstitious people of the area. It is logical to think that it is possible that, given time, as this story was passed along, perhaps being used by elders to scare their children, that the sad story of a woman giving birth to a deformed child would get twisted into that of a vile, devilish monster. We have covered numerous urban legend stories in this podcast that begin with a rather simple story, but one that soon gets blown out of proportion and exaggerated, where it truly becomes a myth or a legend. So taking all that in and looking just at the facts, it becomes clear that the story of a certain mother Leeds giving birth to the Jersey Devil is probably not true. However, there is a more likely origin story that people have discovered. This tale has to do with a rebellious Quaker named Daniel Leeds. Daniel arrived in the Jersey colony in 1677, and soon thereafter began to publish an almanac that included certain taboo subjects in the Quaker faith, such as astrology. Soon the Quaker community grew uncomfortable with Daniel's work and deemed him a pagan, a conspirator of the devil, and shunned him. Despite the hatred of his neighbors, Daniel continued his publications until his son Titan Leeds took over the family business some years later. In the early 1700s, though, there was a certain individual known as Benjamin Franklin. He was also a publisher of his own almanacs and began a rivalry with Titan Leeds. After the long feud, Titan would end up dying first, and Franklin would take the opportunity to print and spread pamphlets around the region which cast the entire Leeds family as heretics and devils, successfully tarnishing the name of his former rivals. Interestingly enough, the Leeds family crest actually contains a dragon, which as most people are familiar with is a evil looking creature that has claws, wings, a forked tail, and a beast-like head. Sound familiar? So when you combine the fact that the majority of people now believe that the Leeds family were evil devil worshippers, and their own family crest bore the image of a monster, 
it is possible that this account is more plausible in starring the myth of what would go on to become the Jersey Devil. As far as supposed encounters go with the Jersey Devil, for over a century there have been a good number of encounters and sightings of this winged beast. Any unexplained or creepy noise or animalistic wail or screech that comes from the Pines area is often attributed to the Jersey Devil. One interesting encounter comes from a man named Joseph Bonaparte, who happened to be the older brother of Napoleon, who was in the Jersey area in 1820. Joseph claimed to others that he came across a monster known as the Devil while he was out hunting near his estate. Unfortunately, he was unable to bring down the creature and prove his claims to anyone. Perhaps the most famous set of sightings began in January 1909, the same year that the first publication of the Devil would be spread among the public. A councilman named E.P. Whedon said that he awoke one night to the sound of flapping wings outside his bedroom window. The next day, Whedon found cloven footprints leading from his house in the snow. As his story spread, more people came forth and claimed to have also come across this bizarre footprints throughout the city. Soon, hundreds of people would say that they had an encounter with the Jersey Devil within a matter of days of Whedon's original tale. The story was set in the local papers, and the legend of the devil grew from that day on. Within the last couple of decades, there have been a lot of other people claiming to have either seen or heard the Jersey Devil. Again, it seems basically any time anyone is in the deep woods and hears a blood-curling cry or a creepy noise, it must come from the state's most famous monster. There have been numerous pictures and accounts of people who have discovered strange footprints or tracks that some believe to belong to this mysterious creature. In 1960, merchants in Camden went so far as to put a $10,000 reward for anyone who could capture the devil alive so that they could use it in a private zoo. Of course, this reward has gone unclaimed to the present day. So, as far as the bottom line goes, what is the final verdict on the Jersey Devil? Well, obviously, there are many who are skeptical of the whole story. I think it goes without saying that Generally, people do not believe the old tale of Mother Leeds and her birthing of a devil creature. It is highly likely that the Jersey Devil is nothing more than the easily spooked English settlers and their ability to quickly judge any strange occurrence as the work of the devil. It has been thought that for centuries now, the Jersey Devil is simply yet another boogeyman story told among the people of the Pine Barren area. For a more natural theory, though, some think that the influenced people of the area were mistaken unfamiliar birds as the Jersey Devil. I think that is pretty likely, in my opinion, just as I'm sure a lot of people who saw a mangy dog back in the craze of the Chupacabra attacks of Puerto Rico would think that they were instead seeing the legendary blood-sucking creature. On the other hand, you have people who believe that the whole thing is simply one made-up story built on another and that there is absolutely no factual basis for the Jersey Devil at all. Whatever the case, whether the Devil was in reality a deformed child that was called a demon by the Quaker community, or a successful smear campaign run by Benjamin Franklin against his rivals, the Leeds family, or if the whole thing is truly just an urban legend that spread across the whole region, it is safe to say that the idea of the Jersey Devil is not going away anytime soon. The next American monster we are going to be discussing are the Dogmen, and this idea was brought to us by Corey. Now, the Michigan Dogman is another cryptid monster that has been around for a long time, though not as old as the Jersey Devil, if you believe its origin tales. The Dogman has been described as being very large, about seven feet tall. 
Depending on what version you hear, the creature either has striking and reflective blue or amber eyes, and it is a bipedal creature that walks upright, and supposedly has the torso of a man, but with the legs of a canine. As the name implies, the head of this creature is often reported as being more dog-like than human, and it emits a fearsome howl instead of a more human-like yell. The first report of a creature resembling the Dogman took place in 1887 in Wexford County in Michigan. However, the beast did not become widespread amongst the public until 1987, when a radio DJ made a song about a half-man, half-dog creature that he came up with himself as part of a April Fool's prank. Funnily enough for him, this the humorous song didn't go quite as planned though to the DJ, as many people began to call into the station and swear that they had in fact seen or encountered the beast that the DJ was jokingly singing about. Many people in the region claimed to have seen some type of dog or wolf-like animal, but one that usually walked upright instead of on all fours. Interestingly enough, this type of beast also inhabits stories from the Ottawa and Chippewa tribes of the area. These legends discuss that of human hybrids, or those who could shapeshift into a variety of different animals at will. The first alleged encounter with the Dogman goes back to 1887, when two lumberjacks who were traveling in the woods came across some type of weird beast that had a dog's head on top of a man's body. At another point years later, a group of horses mysteriously died, supposedly from fright as they showed no wounds and the only evidence that people could find was a set of mysterious dog tracks around the site. One of the most famous encounters came in 1938, when a man named Robert Fortney was ambushed and attacked by a small pack of wild dogs. What was so strange about this, though, is that he swore the leader of the pack reared up on him on its hind legs and stared the man down. This animal had the ability to run on two legs instead of the rest of the pack. After the initial shock of seeing this creature standing up to him, Fortney brought the creature under his sights and fired. The creature, animal, whatever it was, fled at the gunshot and ran off with the rest of the dogs. About this experience, Fortney would later say, I wouldn't call it a dog man, but he would go on to admit that he did not know what to call this aggressive canine that walked like a man. Other reports involving some type of strange dog-like creature occurred later in the area throughout the 50s and 60s. Yet another memorable account in 1993 details how a 13-year-old girl who had never heard of the Dogman went behind her family's home to sneak a cigarette. After she heard a strange growl, the girl turned around and noticed the glint of light coming from in between the planks of a supposedly abandoned barn. After watching for a few minutes, she got a little closer, and with a shock she would discover the sight of a 6-foot-tall creature with the head of a dog staring at her. The girl ran away frightened, and then later she would speak to one of the family's neighbors, who instead of dismissing her sightings claimed to have also seen a buffalo-sized dog in the same barn. Unfortunately, beyond these two statements, there weren't any signs or evidence of some type of mysterious monster hiding out in the family barn. As for any type of possible explanations for the dogman, some have speculated that the creature could be some type of rare indigenous canine species, like a wolf-dog hybrid. I find this interesting because some time ago I did an episode on the legendary Beast of Gévaudan, a fearsome beast that killed a lot of people in France and terrorized an entire region for years. One of the leading theories on that beast was that it was also some type of wolf-dog hybrid, those which can grow quite large inside and have a unique appearance.
For a more supernatural theory though, there are tales from Native American tribes of creatures who were spirits in another place or dimension that would assume a strange physical form while in our earthly realm. Steve Cook, who was the man who wrote the Dogman song as a prank, said that he would later speak with an elder from the Ottawa Chippewa tribe in the 80s, and he told him that the Dogmen could perhaps be members of the secretive shape-shifting tribes of skinwalkers who somehow got stuck in a physical body somewhere in between their animalistic and normal human forms. If these creatures still possess some of their humanity, it might explain why the beast rarely seemed to deliberately try to attack humans. In my opinion, after reading up all about it, I think that the Dogman is not a man-canine hybrid monster like in the popular lore, but I think it's instead most likely just people mistaking natural animals once again. Like I mentioned, I like the idea that there is perhaps a wolf-dog hybrid or even a whole pack like those that are roaming the area, and people who spot these rare animals just mistake them for some type of legendary monster. It would seem to me that if a person spots one of those animals in their own woods, they would just think it's a dog or a wolf. But if you happen to live in an area that also has a supposed popular monster running around, it could influence or trick the way you think into making you see something that really isn't there. So there very well may be a strange dog-like animal running around Michigan, but I think it's safe to say it is probably more of a natural creature than some type of fused man and dog monster. Moving on now, the next American monster that we'll be talking about is another popular creature, and that is the Pope Lick Monster. The Pope Lick Monster is a creature of urban legend fame, and it was suggested to us from Lisa. Now this monster is described as a part man, part goat, part sheep abomination. The monster reportedly lives beneath a railroad trestle bridge over Popelick Creek in Kentucky, given the creature its name. In most written accounts of this bizarre creature, the Popelick monster is a type of hybrid beast possessing the deformed torso and body of a human man. It has stout but powerful goat legs covered in a thick fur. The creature has a bent nose and wide-set eyes, and perhaps most striking of all are the sharp horns protruding from its forehead. Just as with any other good urban legend, there are a numerous origin stories about this grotesque creature. One legend has it that the Popelick monster was originally a circus freak, who was torn around against its will and treated poorly. Later on, the circus train derailed near the trestle bridge above the creek, and the monster escaped, and now it is taking out its revenge on humanity for all the years of abuse it endured. Another version of the story goes that a farmer sacrificed his livestock of goats and sheep in exchange for otherworldly satanic powers. After he was consumed by the raging magic, and the farmer was reincarnated into his final form, his body now morphed with the very beast he used as sacrifices. The Popelick monster allegedly possesses a powerful hypnotic ability that it uses to lure unsuspecting victims onto the train tracks. Other versions would say that it can mimic voices of those familiar with its victim to urge them to venture onto the track. Whatever the case, once a person is brought onto the train tracks, they are in a dazed state of mind and unable to escape the oncoming train. Often it is said that just the sight of this terrifying beast itself is enough to cause people to jump to their own death off the trestle bridge. 
Some tales describe how the monster leaps down from the bridge onto passing cars, attacking anyone inside. Another set of stories claim that the monster wields a bloody axe that it uses to chop up anyone foolish enough to walk near its bridge. Now all of this really reminds me of the previous urban legend that we covered in another episode, that of the Bunny Man, which takes place in our home state of Virginia. That legend also has a good number of origin stories, each more absurd and whimsical than the last, and also describes of an angry man guarding a bridge who enjoys killing those unfortunate to cross its track. Now there really aren't any claims or reports of people actually encountering the public monster that can be taken seriously. So I think it is safe to say that this legend, at least, is entirely fiction in nature. On the other hand, that is not to say that the public monster has done no harm. On the contrary, this urban legend is probably one of the most dangerous of any we have talked about. Because of the notoriety of the monster and the, and the popularity of the location, many people seeking a thrill or scare will take trips to the trestle bridge that the monster supposedly lives at. Since the start of the Popelik monster stories, there have been a number of deaths and accidents caused by people falling off the bridge or being struck by an oncoming train. The tracks are actually quite active, as several trains pass over the bridge every day. Just as with the Bunnyman Bridge, the infamous Popelik train bridge has become a hotspot for kids to trespass onto, especially those fulfilling dares or showing how brave they are to their schoolmates. Unfortunately, in 1987, a young boy who had climbed onto the tracks fell off the trestle to avoid being struck by the train, falling to his death. In 2000, another teen would fall off the trestle and die as well. Even just a few months ago in April, another disaster occurred. I actually remember reading up on this a few months ago when it happened, which was when I first became aware of the public monster. In this accident, a 26-year-old tourist and her boyfriend were exploring the tracks looking for the infamous monster. Unfortunately for them, a train came barreling towards them. With not enough time to make it to safety on the other side of the bridge, the boyfriend swung over the side and hung on the side of the trestle and managed to hold on long enough for the train to pass. His girlfriend was not so lucky as before she could react, she was struck by the heavy train, which sent her flying off the bridge and 80 feet below, and she would end up dying from her injuries. It is sad to say, but despite being one of the most improbable and unrealistic cryptids of the nation, or any legendary creature that we have talked about on this podcast, the Popelik monster may have claimed more lives than any other mythical beast. The fourth and final monster we'll be talking about in this episode was sent in to us from Ashley, and her idea was the Beast of Bladenborough, also known as the Vampire Beast. The Beast of Bladenborough is a reported vampire-like creature that carried out a series of attacks and killings on livestock and pets. These took place in Bladenborough, North Carolina in 1954. In total, its reign of terror lasted just 10 days, but its legacy remains. Bladenborough itself is a small community surrounded by pine forests and swamps. It is located at the southeastern edge of the North Carolina Piedmont. The story all begins in December of 1953. Then, local police chief Roy Fors took witness accounts of an attack that left a dog dead. The creature responsible was described as sleek, black, and about five feet long. On December 31st, two dogs belonging to a man named Johnny Voss were found dead at his home. According to their owner, the two dogs were torn into ribbons and crushed. The next day, Police Chief Fours was called to the farm of Woody Storm. 
Two of Woody's dogs had also been killed the night before, by something large and powerful. It seemed to those who discovered the bodies of the dogs that they had been nearly completely drained of blood. The next night, another farmer reported that a dog of his had also been killed and eaten up. The attacks continued. Two further dogs were killed on January 3rd. Chief Fours had one of the dogs autopsied, and he said of the report that there wasn't more than two or three drops of blood left in the dog. At this point, the police chief was getting nearly overwhelmed with the amount of reports from the locals regarding dogs being attacked or killed. A local man named Julian Tater Shaw, owner of one of the region's gas stations, heard from others that a goat had died in a strange way. Tater Shaw drove to the edge of town to see the carnage himself. He would later say about the corpse of the goat that his head was flat as a fritter. It was weird. Tater claimed that several cows and hogs were killed in similar manner in the surrounding area. Now there were many people who had supposedly seen this creature in passing. One man reported saying it resembled a bear or panther. Another Bladenboro man said he saw the monster running at night, but it also had a smaller creature just like it running beside it. Another man heard a strange sound outside his house that resembled a baby crying. He tried to follow whatever creature it was, but it couldn't get a clear sight of it. The way it moved and thrashed about in the bushes, though, led him to believe that it was fairly large, perhaps around 150 pounds. The next evening, another man gave his encounter story to the newspaper, saying, I glanced out the window and saw this thing. It had me plumb spellbound. It was about 20 inches high. It had a long tail, about 14 inches. The color of it was dark. It had a face exactly like a cat, only I ain't ever seen a cat that big. It was walking around stealthy, sneaky, moving about trying to get to my dogs. I jumped for my shotgun and loaded it and went out to shoot it, but it moved into the darkness right away and I couldn't find him again. The story began to spread like fire all across the town. Newspapers reporting on the attacks spread around the area, and soon Bladenboro was invaded by hundreds of men coming from all over the south, some as far away as Tennessee, arriving at the town all hoping to get a shot of bagging the vampire creature that had already become a legend. A pack of fraternity brothers from UNC Chapel Hill, armed to the teeth, even drove to the town with the hopes of putting the beast head up on their wall. This situation, again, very much reminds me of the Chupacabra and Beast of Jevudan attacks, where you basically had entire towns up in arms and venturing out into the woods to try to kill the creature that was terrorizing them. The problem with the Beast of Bladenborough, though, is that basically no one knew exactly what they were actually hunting. People were just speculating or guessing what it was that was killing dogs and livestock. None of the witnesses could really give a clear image of what they had seen. Some were saying that it was a Carolina panther, but the problem with that is that that particular species had gone extinct in the early 20th century. Others were claiming they saw something that looked like a small bear or coyote or a huge wild dog. Again, just because of the hysteria sweeping the town, anytime anyone saw a four-legged animal scurrying around, they immediately thought it was a vampire beast and went charging after it. On January 5th, it is estimated that 500 people had shown up in Bladenboro to hunt in the woods. Another hundred arrived the next day, and Chief Fours came up with a controversial plan to use stray dogs as bait for the creature but his idea was shot down by the town officials. It is thought that by the 7th of January, as many as a thousand outsiders had swarmed to the town to take part of this legendary hunt. It was around this day that the leaders of the area decided to call off the hunt entirely. 
The thought being that with so many outsiders and locals prowling the woods armed with guns, it was only a matter of time before someone got hurt or killed accidentally. Fortunately for the locals, the violent attacks stopped just as quickly as they began. It is not known for certain what caused this reign of terror to end, just as no one really knows what creature was behind the attacks in the first place. But there are a few who try to take credit for the killing of the Beast of Bladenboro. A local farmer named Luther Davis found a bobcat in one of his steel traps and shot it dead, producing the body to anyone he could to show that he had been the one to kill the legendary creature. The mayor of Bladenboro quickly took this opportunity to announce the beast had been killed and that any further hunting actions would be unnecessary. The body of the bobcat was hung up on a flagpole with a sign that said, This is the Beast of Bladenboro. The problem that some people have with this is that many say that a bobcat would not be able to have attacked and killed so many dogs because a lot of the dogs were a lot larger than the cat. There was another man who on the very same day struck some type of large cat with his vehicle. It was spotted like a leopard and about two feet high, weighing around 80 pounds. Again, this animal was smaller than what the average witness accounts were saying about the beast. Still, there were others around the time who tried to claim the glory of killing the beast, but since no one could agree on what kind of animal was responsible for the attacks in the first place, none of these other claims could ever be certified. As for any final theories on the Beast of Bladenboro, though most accounts would at least agree that the creature was feline in nature, even this broad statement is under a debate. Some witnesses swore that the beast was some type of bear or coyote. Police Chief Roy Forrest himself thought it was some type of violent mad wolf. One of the leading ideas is that the beast was an exotic panther roaming the area. The problem with that is that panthers are not native to the country, and it is very unlikely that one could hunt in one area without being found or known. A worker at the Raleigh State Museum believes the creature to have been a coyote based on the witness accounts and tracks. On the other hand, a game warden of the state named Sam Coolberth thought what he had seen suggested the creature was a cougar. Since there is just so much debate and divisiveness about the identity of the creature, perhaps there is another explanation. It could be possible that the Beast of Bladenboro was not a panther or a cougar or a wild dog, but instead never actually existed in the first place. This theory was actually presented by Mayor Fusel of Bladenboro, saying he believed the creature to be a hoax, even though he was one of the men describing the dead dogs to the newspaper reporters. He found the circumstances around the deaths to be strange. He would say that he had no idea the fervor of attention that his town would get from the story in the papers, though he did admit a little publicity never hurts a town. Despite the rush of hunters and glory seekers arriving in his town, Mayor Fusel knew it was time to call it quits. In an interview later on, he said, We had to do something. The town was armed to the teeth. Even small boys were carrying guns. Chief of Police Roy Fors and I knew someone would get shot accidentally. The animal was about 90% imagination, 10% truth. Newspaper reporters labeled it the Beast of Bladenboro and called it a vampire. So in my final opinion, I think that perhaps there was some type of wild animal that attacked a few dogs over the week-long period, but it certainly wasn't a vampire creature or monster that the townspeople were making out to be. I think a lot of the reports were either people exaggerating or lying, trying to get some of the attention that the story was creating. With the craziness going on in the town in just a short amount of time, what would normally just be a sighting or a quick encounter with a wild animal like a dog or a wolf, 
turn into a life or death tale of surviving the beast. So in the end, we will probably never know the full truth of the story, which is why the Beast of Bladenborough will likely remain one of America's most interesting monster stories for years to come. Thank you for listening to the Strange Matters podcast. If you would like to discuss any of the legendary creatures covered in this show, please feel free to write to us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. If there are other monsters or nasty creatures around the world that you know of and would like us to research, feel free to send in your ideas, and perhaps we can do a follow-up episode. I would also like to invite you to visit our website at strangematterspodcast.com, where you can leave comments, listen to, and download our entire lineup of episodes. I'd also like to inform our listeners that Strange Matters is made possible by our generous fans who are supporting the show through our Patreon page. We would like to thank our very first wave of supporters to the show, Joel, Christian, Rico, Julian, and JC. If any of you listeners are interested in helping support our podcast, you can visit our page at patreon.com slash strangematters, or visit our website and click on the Support Us page. On Patreon, you can donate as little as $1 a month, and all of our patrons can help decide what topics we should focus on in the coming weeks. You can also get access to exclusive bonus episodes every month that we will make just for our patrons. Finally, we will ask if you are listening to us on iTunes, please take the time to leave us a quick rating and a review. We enjoy reading your feedback, and it also helps promote the podcast so we can reach new listeners. So with all that said, until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care everyone.